This was an amazing time in the history of God's people. There hadn't been a recognised voice of God for many generations in Israel. They kind of thought that God had just got bored with them or gone away or something. For generation upon generation, there'd been no recognised prophets. And then John shows up. And there's something about John that is really compelling. I mean, he's in the whole garb, he's wearing a camel hair outfit, and he's eating wild honey and locusts, which I'm told is not so bad, you know, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's out on the outskirts, and he's calling people to repentance. And there's quite a vibe growing. People are getting excited. In fact, this guy is so remarkable, they're wondering, is he the Messiah? So he must have been pretty good, because they didn't just say to anybody next to them, yeah, it might be the Messiah. There was something about John that really was compelling. And so the first thing that is remarkable about John is he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Just imagine for a moment um, in Australian politics, for example, if there was a particular politician that people were starting to get really excited about and everyone said, could this be the next Prime Minister? Can you imagine one politician go, no, no, I'm not going to, well, in fact, they all do that, but what they're really saying is, uh, I don't look too much like I want to be, um, but I'll stand back so that you can force me to be. But this wasn't John. John was really saying, no, the kind of person who's the Messiah is at a whole other level to me. I baptise you with water, the stuff we can see, taste and touch, because you're repenting, something that you decide to do. It's very, very tangible. That's John. He is one of the old school prophets dealing with stuff we understand. Water, decisions, okay? We get that. But he says, the one who's coming, he's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's at a whole other level. John wants to be really clear that the stuff that he's doing is stuff that people are familiar with and the stuff that's coming is something that they have no idea about. Because nobody's sitting there went, oh yeah, Holy Spirit and fire, that one. Yeah, no, that's right, we haven't seen that. Yeah. Now they're going, Holy Spirit and fire? Like, when I say to you, unless you've already got some kind of preconceived idea of what that would be, you're probably wrong. You know, what is this baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire? It's very, very other. In fact, holy, the root meaning of holy, has nothing at all to do with morality. It has to do with otherness. It has to do with being very different. It has to do with being counter to the culture. That's at the heart of what holiness is. God is other. And so there's a spirit of complete otherness that's coming. A spirit that kind of decenters us and makes us wonder about something beyond what we know. Holy Spirit and fire. 
uh, interesting things to put together. Because fire is to do with cleansing and passion. You know, they use fire for cleansing. Uh, if you watch the old spaghetti westerns and someone gets shot in the arm or the leg and, you know, Joe has to take the bullet out and they give him a swig of whiskey and they always toast the knife first on, the, on a flame or in the fire or something to, to sterilise it. The fire kills the germs, the bacteria. It purifies. That's good. And in a sense, passion is very similar because to be passionate means to be liberated from all the things that distract you and be single-minded, single-hearted for something. It's like when you get passionate for your lover, your lover, your loved one. It's like nobody else in the world exists at that moment. They're all gone. And it's that one person that you have eyes for. So, Holy Spirit is spirit otherness. And fire is this cleansing passion thing that is very transformative. Jeremiah knew something about this um, unrelenting passion in part of his prophecies in chapter 20. He says, But if I say I will not remember him, remember God, or speak any more of God's name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. It's like this thing that's so powerful within me. It bursts forth. I have to use too much energy to hold it back. That's the kind of thing we're looking at with passion. So, otherness, cleansing, which is kind of a liberating towards passion. That's what this other guy, the Messiah, is going to baptise us in. And there's this little passage about judgment. We're not so keen on judgment, are we? Um, judgment got a really bad press when Dante was around writing about the Inferno, his uh, divine comedy. And um, I think ever since then we've had these visions that Dante has given us of fires and people screaming in pain and all that sort of stuff. But the interesting thing about this description of so-called judgment is it's a description of a, a winnowing floor where they get separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's actually just a description of what was done every day of the week kind of thing, except for the Sabbath, when they would winnow out the wheat and, and take the, the good stuff and put it where the good stuff goes and the chance that we burn. It's what you do. And my, my, my observation about this is, when I talk with people about matters of faith, people make their own choices, don't they? Some people want to be gathered together, and some people don't. And so we each get what we want, in that sense. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole Dante Inferno stuff. I don't think that's helpful. But in, in actual fact, this is about respecting what people make the decision for. In one sense, we judge ourselves. We make the decision of what we want, and God goes, you sure? Okay. Let you, let you think about that. Made me think of um, like the way uh, criminals behave. You know, I'm sure we all know about criminals, don't we? Even from television. They do stuff in secret. They don't want everybody to know that they're criminals. They don't want everybody to know them. 
they hide. And even if they're very public figures, because let's face it, some of the biggest criminals are very public figures, their criminality stays hidden because they know it's unacceptable to the culture. And in that way, they are never known. They are always hiding themselves. They don't want to be gathered with others. They don't want to be known. And we feel that tension within ourselves as well because there's always things that we want to hide. We always feel a little bit like criminals in some respects. We know we're not perfect. We know we behave poorly at times and so forth. And so there's bits of us that we tuck away and, and keep quiet. The invitation here, of course, is to be gathered, to be known by God and by each other in the context of grace. And those who don't want to be, they don't have to be. Simple like that. Then this bit that I find have found really, really confusing, and perhaps I am still confused, and you'll probably feel a bit more confused after I talk about it. But Jesus comes to John for baptism. Here's John calling people to repentance, to be baptised to mark a decision to turn away from their sin. And Jesus comes for baptism. Now none the doctrine says that he wasn't sinful. He had no, nothing to repent of. No need to go and submit to baptism. So was this some kind of play acting, some gesture, like, you know, adults that go on the merry-go-round and pretend to have a fun time so their kids will enjoy it? Is it of that order? I don't think so. And I, I, this is a new idea for me, so um, we can chew it over together. But I see Jesus as so identifying in his humanity with humanity and the complete otherness of the new way that's coming that he wanted to say, yeah, as part of the human race, I also want to say the way humanity has done it up to now is not the way. I'm identifying with that, with humanity. And there's a big change coming. And I want to signal my readiness for it with humanity by going for baptism. And I think that's what he's doing. He's identifying, because Jesus wasn't pretending to be human. He was human. And his identification with humanity meant that he wanted to genuinely acknowledge that the way it was being done up to that point wasn't working. We need to be genuinely open to see a new way, an alternative. And then there's this marvellous bit of theatre, in a sense, where we get the Father's voice and the Holy Spirit descending in some way that was tangible in bodily form, like a dove. I used to think that meant the Holy Spirit looked like a dove, but someone then suggested to me, no, it just came down like a dove. Doves come down really gently, so it might look like anything. just came down gently like a dove. So many ways of reading things, isn't it? And the Spirit is there, and the Father is there, and the Son is there, and they're all there. And this moment of confirmation about who Jesus is. The imprimatur of the Father and the Spirit 
these were more familiar divine entities. So people knew about the Father, that was the God that they'd been accustomed to worshipping down through the scriptures, and they also knew about the Spirit, because the Spirit would come upon the prophets of old and they would prophesy. But the Son, the Messiah, the Jesus character, he was yet to make an appearance, really, in a way that they understood. So, just as I said once before about the way um, Robin helped me meet people around the place by introducing, those who are known introduce the one who is not yet known. So we go from the familiar, the Father, the Spirit, to the one who's unknown or unfamiliar, the Son. And that's what's happening in this little interaction here. And this is about confirming the identity of the Son because that's really, really critical. Because as the story unfolds, the identity of Jesus as both completely human and as God is critical. Because when we get to the really critical moment when he is crucified, that's the moment that needs to speak about the fact that humanity has crucified our God and needs to break the system for us so that we can start thinking in whole new ways and the Spirit come and start to change the way we do things. Before all of that happens, the identity of Jesus needs to be established without question and the, the greatest authorities to do that are the Father and the Spirit. So. so there's an awful lot in this little interaction. We've got John, who's not on his way to a political career, wanting the top job. He knew what he was about. He was looking for someone who was completely other, who wouldn't function in the way that the prophets of old functioned. He didn't even know who it was initially, but when he saw him, he knew when the Spirit came and the Father spoke. Jesus comes and offers a baptism that is in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of otherness, and fire, cleansing and passion. So whereas John's baptism was to mark a decision that the person had made, Jesus' baptism was one that would propel the person into their life, going on from there and actually fuel their life. It wasn't their decision that they made, although there might be a decision to accept or go with, but the Holy Spirit continues to invite you to otherness continues to refine and cleanse you, continues to fire your passion by helping you let go of those things that would distract you or divert you. So that's, a, that's an interlife thing, more and more. And as we go with the Spirit, we go more and more into that life. We become other to what we were in one sense, in the sense that we've not yet become all that within us to become. And so we need to keep growing. You know, I look at my girls as they grow up and they never stay the same. They grow so quickly and physically their features change but their comprehension changes and their vocabulary changes and the way they interact with people change. 
And for goodness sake, you don't want them to stay as babies. How horrendous. I mean, in fact, we know it's horrendous when a grown adult behaves like a teenager. It's not right. You're supposed to keep changing and going into new places and new otherness and maturing. And that's the baptism that Jesus offers. It's a beckoning, a calling, and empowering. So, the baptism of John was necessary. It was that moment where he said, we don't have a right up to now. It's the repentance baptism. And repentance is that moment where we go, yeah, we haven't got to sort it. We need to acknowledge that and be open to a new way. And then Jesus comes and demonstrates the new way and baptises his followers to go into that otherness and that cleansing and that passion and into the world to bring about that. So that's our job. So we better pray, I reckon. Lord Jesus, otherness scares us so much of the time and we need to be confident that you are there with us and we can be confident because you've gone there before us. The way that you were with people was so different to the way anyone else was. The depth of your grace and compassion and understanding. You gave yourself and gave yourself. And then gave yourself even to the point of death on the cross. In the hope of resurrection. And you invite us to follow you, that we might give ourselves, not that we would be used up, but that we would discover a fullness of life that is beyond what we can even imagine that exists as we attend to others. Anoint us with your Holy Spirit in that direction, the direction of your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So go out in the spirit of our Lord Jesus. Go out to embrace otherness. Go out as those who are being cleansed and liberated from all that would distract you. Go out in passion for life and love for others. Go out in the name of Jesus. Amen.